When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Heartball is brought to you by. Hey, this is Ray Giudice, lawyer here in Atlanta, 404-964-4185. And a big baseball fan, my first World Series was Tigers-Cardinals 1968. Mickey Lolich won three games, and the Tigers beat the Bob Gibson-led St. Louis Cardinals, a great team. But listen to Chris Domino's Hardball podcast here at the Podcast Park, 680thefan.com. If you ever need a lawyer who loves baseball as much as you do, 404-964-4185. Hello, baseball fans. This is Brad Hangey, and I'm a partner at Ducks Dugout in Marietta, Georgia. Ducks Dugout is one of the largest sports memorabilia stores in the country, boasting a 6,500-square-foot showroom full of -of one-of-a-kind sports cards and memorabilia. Our partners have more than 100 years of combined experience in the sports collecting hobby, and we are always happy to offer consultation about your collection. We also buy collections, ranging from a single item to an entire house full. Ducks Dugout is located at 2800 Canton Road in Marietta. Check us out at DucksDugout.com. You girls get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Basketball hits deep the right. This could be it. Way back there. Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung on and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is episode number 38 in a series of one-on-one conversations I've had with some of the best to ever play the game and others whose stories are moments in their careers that help shape some of baseball's most unforgettable seasons and postseasons. It's stories of teammates and games and wins and losses, stories of baseball's place in American history and the cities and fans that helped this country in both good and bad times men who grew up in or played during the Depression, men who fought in World War II like our guest today, stories of Jackie Robinson told by his wife Rachel or Larry Doby and Monty Irvin, telling you the experiences with the country and baseball as they navigated through racism and segregation. Willie Horton, who speaks of the country's division during the Vietnam War era and what it was like to win a World Series in the middle of riots in Detroit. It's the honor to speak to and now share the stories of Vince Scully and Phil Rizzuto and Stan Musial, 
both on and off the field. The story of the Miracle Mets and Jim Palmer and Ron Santo as they described things in their life they were thankful for, even though there were trials that could have stopped them before we ever knew their names. Before I tell you about today's guest, I want to thank a couple of people who helped bring you hardball. A good friend and a great Atlanta-based attorney, Ray Judice. If you have questions about any legal need, any legal need, Ray is the one to get a hold of. He's a defense attorney who can point you in the right direction about any legal matter that requires an attorney's expertise. Call him on his cell, that's right, his cell, at 404-964-4185 or go to rayglaw.com and let him do what he does best. The other are my friends at Ducks Dugout, a full-service sports memorabilia company that I know baseball fans will want to get to know for their own collections or for holiday gifts for the sports fans in their lives. Trusted in the industry, and that's important, they both buy and sell collections and bring in athletes from all sports for in-person signings. Coming up, Michael Harris, the second of the Braves, and unanimous Cy Young Award winner Sandy Alcantara. Find them and their authenticated items at ducksdugout.com or give them a call to set up that appointment if you're looking to both buy or sell at 678-695-7761. Today's guest and episode is a little bit more personal than others. When your mom and dad have dates that include going to Ebbets Field in the mid-50s, and when your dad, born and raised in Brooklyn, experiences all of the highs and lows of his teenage years watching the Dodgers get oh so close, and then finally breaking through to see Dem Bums beat the hated Yankees in 1955 as a 20-year-old, who by his account, and by the way others I've spoken to, they all started to think that they and the entire borough of Brooklyn, which by the way they saw as basically their own separate country, would never live to see and feel the elation of being the kings of the baseball world, would have that feeling in 1955 of true identity, no longer the stepchild to Manhattan. And then, of course, it was completely wiped out in two seasons. Two seasons watching them leave the borough a baseball orphan. I'm 59 years old, born six years after the Dodgers left Brooklyn, but I think I know more about this team and its history and their fan base than any other in the game, more than the Mets, who became a Met house after the defection, or the Braves, who I've been around and covered for over 25 years, for one reason and one reason only. It never mattered more to any fan base in the history of the game than it has to this fan base, the no longer Brooklyn Dodger fan base. They didn't win nearly as much as the Yankees, of course, or the Cardinals, or many others on top of that. They won one. One World Series. They opened the doors to Ebbets Field in 1913, and they won one World Series. And instead of turning on them as a fan base, they embraced them more. Wait till next year was invented in Brooklyn. My dad was a Gil Hodges man, my mom a Duke Snyder girl. To have an ability to speak with Joan Hodges, as I did years ago, and to watch Gil finally make it into Cooperstown almost 50 years after his death, And 17 years after my dad's, it's what makes baseball relationships different than all others. They tie generations of family and fan bases together. The bad blood of abandonment gets washed away as the men of your youth or your dad's or your grandfather's youth get celebrated or remembered on special baseball anniversary dates. It brings people together like nothing else. To have an ability to see in my lifetime, I just missed Jackie, who was inducted in 1962. Pee-wee and Sandy and Don and Leo and Walter Alston and finally Gil and my guest today get enshrined amongst the greatest of all time has meant more to me than it should, as I never saw any of them play one inning or manage. But it did. It does. And I will tell you that having a chance to speak to Carl Erskine, one of the nicest men I've ever had the pleasure to spend time with, and to become what I call a baseball friend with Ralph Branca, who I called yearly until his passing just to say hello and talk some Braves baseball and horses. Who, by the way, I'm very happy I had a chance to tell how much I respected him, never bemoaning the fact publicly 
that what the Giants did to him and the Dodgers in 1951 was criminal. And Johnny Roseboro, who I had one of my favorite ever conversations with, an episode you can hear in the Hardball archives, to Vince Scully, who I had the pleasure to share a few in-person moments with over the years, and an episode in here as well, along with Rachel Robinson, another conversation posted as a previous episode. These were the conversations I call my dad about both before and after they happened. Our guest today, Edwin Duke Snyder, from Compton, California, to Flatbush, to Los Angeles, back to New York for a moment with the Mets, back to California for his final cup of coffee with the Giants. The Duke of Flatbush was a two-time world champion, an eight-time All-Star, an NL home run leader, an NL RBI leader, a top-10 MVP player six times, including a controversial second place in 1955 for 2,000 hits, 407 home runs, and a lifetime 295 hitter. 11 World Series home runs, including four and two separate fall classics, including the 55 Subway Series that marks many of the lives associated with it forever. He lived in the neighborhood, 178 Marine Avenue in Bay Ridge, as did many of his teammates. He looked the part. He carried himself with a self-assuredness. Don't call it cocky. His temper got the best of him at times as a young player. He admits that. Singer-songwriter Terry Cashman immortalized him along with Willie and Mickey in Talking Baseball. But you know you're special when multiple songs say your name. See a Van Wagner song titled 52 Duke Snyder about his dad's baseball card collection. He served in the Navy in 1945 and 46. He led the decade of the 50s in RBI completely, more than anybody else in baseball. He competed against Hank Aaron on Home Run Derby, the original one in 1960. Hell, he was even on an episode of The Rifleman. It took baseball writers 11 years to finally vote him into the Hall of Fame. He seemed to have been punished by some. The Dodgers didn't win enough. That temperament early in his career might have turned some off. He wasn't Willie or Mickey or didn't live up to some promise of his potential. All ridiculous. He finally had his moment in 1980 on the steps of the Hall of Fame, thanking family and friends and speaking of teammates and opponents. His on-the-surface charm life had its bumps. He lived until the age of 84. He saw his four children grow up and became a grandfather to 10. He wrote a book, The Duke of Flatbush, and he joins us here today on Hardball. Tell me, are we blindfolded because we might know you personally? Yes. <laughs> are you associated with baseball? Yes. He's like a Brooklyn Dodger, hits left-handed, uh-uh. and I believe he plays center field for the Dodgers. Are you by any chance Duke Snyder? And here is Duke Snyder. And he played on the boys of summer. Boom! Look out! He didn't look anymore. Boy, what a swing! And he built this one deep to right, going, going, it's a home run! Hey, listen to that crowd! Congratulations from everybody, the old war horse! The 399th home run of his major league career! Come on, you Flatbush refugees! Let's keep the Dodgers in Brooklyn! And tonight, a very special guest, a gentleman I've talked about oh, for a long time, ever since I got on the air here in Atlanta, for a whole lot of reasons, and we'll talk about some of them tonight. My pleasure to welcome into tonight's show, Mr. Duke Snyder. Mr. Snyder, how are you this evening? I'm just fine, Chris. How about yourself? Very good, sir. Actually, things are very good, and I will tell you right now, I am not ashamed or unabashed to tell you that I've been waiting a long time to have the opportunity to speak to you, and first and foremost, let me just tell you, my parents grew up in Brooklyn, and my mom and dad actually dated at Ebbets Field a number of times, and my mom was always sworn, if not for my dad, she might have been Mrs. Duke Snyder. (laughs) Well, that's very flattering, but I, you know, we had uh, so many great fans in Brooklyn that uh, uh, I go to memorabilia shows now and sign autographs, and uh, some of the stories these people have, it's amazing.
little very loyal fan. Well, I'll tell you how big a fan my dad was of you as well. He doesn't even mind that she tells that story. <laughs> now, I will also tell you, in 1988, I believe, um, you had a book come out where you talked about your life and your life and times with the Brooklyn Dodgers, both before and after, correct? Right. I drove, as a gift to my father, I didn't tell him one day, you were at a mall in Brooklyn signing the book one day. And I drove in, and I got it signed, and you personalized it to my dad. I gave it to him, I believe, uh, on Father's Day. And it really is one of the most treasured possessions he has. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I still sign some of those books. I don't, I don't know where the people are getting them, but uh, they're brand new. And uh, it's been quite a few years ago the book was published. But uh, we, we had fun writing the book, and uh, it's, uh, it's a book that children can read, uh, and I think it's very entertaining for the adults, too, because it, uh, it paints a pretty good picture of how it was in Brooklyn. Did you enjoy the experience when the idea of a book came about? I'm assuming people probably had asked you even before that time to put that stuff down pen to paper. Well, there's been a few uh, uh, writers come to me and ask me about a book, but I, I really wasn't interested until a, a young lady in uh, Fallbrook here in California uh, came up to me and said she, she'd like to write it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we got together, and uh, their family, good friends with uh, Bev and myself, and uh, and uh, we sat down, and uh, she did a lot of research, did a little bit of traveling, and uh, lo and behold, there there it came. Bill Gilbert did the final writing, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, Becky Jackson, uh, the lady's name, uh, Becky uh, did all the research and, and quite a bit of the writing herself. Now, does it seem like yesterday when you actually had a chance to pick up that pen and sign your first contract? <laughs> Well, I was 17 years old. I would have signed most anything at that particular time. Uh, it was during World War II, and uh, you could sign with whichever team you you uh, wanted to if they offered you a contract, of course. And uh, I became a Brooklyn Dodger fan in 1941 when I was in junior high school when uh, Duke Casey's pitch got by Mickey Owen and the Dodgers lost the World Series to the Yankees. Uh, I, uh, I felt for the Dodgers uh, losing that particular game and losing the World Series that uh, I became a fan. And uh, lo and behold, a few years later, why a Brooklyn scout uh, came to my door and uh, we eventually signed a contract. Now, if not for you being a fan of the Dodgers, do you think you might have gone in a different direction? Uh, well, that's very difficult. Uh, I was a, I was uh, I, my parents and I always talked about me playing Major League Baseball, and uh, so baseball was was my life. Uh, I played other sports in, uh, in high school, but uh, baseball was the direction I wanted to go, and uh, fortunately, uh, it was a Brooklyn scout. There were a couple other scouts that were, were interested in me, Cincinnati and St. Louis and Pittsburgh. They were all interested in, uh, in signing me, but uh, I chose the Dodgers. Now, back in the early 40s, do you remember what it was you signed for? Was there even a signing bonus at that point? Well, uh, you know, uh, when you turned 18, you were going to go into the military, mm-hmm. World War II, and uh, and uh, I would have given them money to, to sign. That's how much I wanted to play. But I got $750. And I think a lot of people think the, the nickname Duke actually came about after you got to Brooklyn, but that's not the case. No, my dad, uh, my dad named me Duke uh, when I was about in the fifth grade in elementary school. He one day he said to my mom, here comes the Duke. <laughs> it's a lot better than Edwin. As a matter of fact, I think it's one of the great nicknames of all time, the Duke of Flatbush. It just says so much in so little time. Well, it does. And the, it's, 
sounds a lot better than the air to flat place, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Do you remember seeing New York for the first time? Yes, I went to spring training in uh, 1944 with the Dodgers. And like I said, during the war, and uh, we had spring training uh, in uh, New York, uh, Bear Mountain, New York, and we uh, did a lot of our training in the in the Army Field House, the military academy. They had a field house, and their great football teams of the Davis and Blanchard mm-hmm. were working out in one half of uh, the field house, and we were all screened in and everything, taking batting practice in the field house. It was very cold outside. Uh, we couldn't go to Florida for spring training. We had to stay uh, close to home, and uh, so we went to spring training there. And uh, I was 17, and in awe of the whole thing, including I'm assuming just the the magnitude of how big New York City must have looked to you at that point. Well, when I went to the city, uh, I came through the city to go to Bear Mountain. My, I was in awe. I'd, I'd seen it in newsreels and seen pictures of New York City and things like that. But to uh, to actually be there and look up at those buildings, like. 17-year-old kid, they're hardly ever out of uh, California, why it was a big thrill for me. And you actually are brought up, were you, were you there opening day with Jackie Robinson in 1947? Yes, I was. That was my first day. It was your first day? Yes, it was. Uh, he got all the ink, and rightfully so. Uh, I, I got paid to watch Jackie uh, play his first game. Do you remember, was it was it as big a deal when we, at the moment as it was when we look back on it now, I mean, from the inside? Well, like I said, I was 17, and uh, and I was in awe of just being there. And uh, lo and behold, uh, I wasn't 17 then. I was 17 when I signed. But 1947, I was uh, 21, uh, 21 years old. And uh, I was in awe because Jackie was my sports idol in, in Southern California when, when he went to UCLA and Pasadena Junior College. And a lot of people may not be aware, but Jackie Robinson was uh, was an All-American athlete all around, track and field, baseball, football included, I believe. Well, I saw him play football, and uh, if uh, if you've seen this big run, the, the quarterback at uh, Virginia Tech. Yes, sir. Well, uh, Jackie ran a lot like he did in mm-hmm. football. He could stop and start real quick and change directions. And, uh, and when he got in rundowns in baseball, why, he made him look bad, uh, Sort of an automatic out when you get caught in between bases, but he was usually safe. He would he would just outsmart the opposing club and uh, get to the next base, and that's the way he ran football. It was it was a thrill to see him play football, basketball, the long jump in in track and field. Uh, they call it the broad jump then. And uh, I don't know. I saw him play ping pong. I saw him play tennis. I seen him play golf. He could. There wasn't anything he couldn't play. Now, Mr. Snyder, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think with the passing of Pee Wee Reese. Are you the last li- living member of the starting eight from the 55 World Championship team? Hush. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, we were talking about that the other day. We had a reunion. Uh, well, not a reunion, but a celebration of the 51 Giant. We had over us uh, back in New York. This is the 50th anniversary of that. And mm-hmm. Frank and Thompson were there and quite a few of the Giants, quite a few of the, the still living members of the 51 Dodgers were there. And that, I believe, was at the Marriott Marquis. I just talked to Bobby Thompson last week about that event. Right. We had a nice time, and uh, it was fun seeing, uh, seeing some of the former, gi- the, the former Giants, and, uh, and some of them have become good friends of mine, and uh, Wes Westrom, Larry Jansen, guys like that, Thompson, of course. And, uh, and uh, we didn't like them too much at that particular time, but uh, uh, I guess uh, through the years they've become pretty nice guys. Now, 
Now the 1951 season has taken on another spin this past off season with Monty Irvin and a few other players coming out and talking about that sign stealing. Did, did you have an inkling about that, or did you even know about that before this? There had been talk about it. There had been talk about them stealing signs at Wrigley Field in, in Chicago and a couple other ballparks. But I don't play that up too much. Uh, it's kind of nice to know what's coming, but uh, you still got to hit it. Mm-hmm. And Bobby denies that he knew what was coming. Well, you know, most of the time in those days, uh, you saw several fastballs in each at bat. You know, he, he had Omar Frank in the first game of that playoff. Right. So uh, he knew Branca, and uh, he saw a pitch he liked, and he jumped on it and hit it out of the park. Uh, like I said, you got uh, even though you know what pitch is coming, you still got to hit it. Well, I've watched batting practice. Easy. Right. Not everybody hits home runs in batting practice when they know what's coming. Right. Yeah. Can you describe, you mentioned you didn't necessarily like the Giants too much back then. I know there was a, a strong disdain for the Yankees as well. Can you describe for someone my age what baseball was like in New York City in its heyday of the 50s? Well, it was a war with the Giants because of the Burrows pretty close together, and uh, we play each other, and uh, there was a lot of dislike amongst the fans. The Giant fans got on us when we were at the Polo Grounds, and our fans got on the Giants pretty good when they were at Epic Field, and uh, it carried on onto the field, and you might have a two-to-one game that might go three hours, but uh, not like today's three-hour game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of action in it, and a few knockdown pitches and things like that, but uh, fight now and then, but... Uh, Basically, it was it was a war, and uh, we had a lot of interesting games with those guys. Now, in 1955, the Dodgers do win their World Series. Obviously, it's still called to this day a Subway Series, as we saw last year. Did anybody really, players, I mean, take the subway to get from one borough to the other? I did. I, I, I'm sure people did. Yeah, mm-hmm. they, they. you could go from Brooklyn over to uh, the Yankee Stadium uh, on the subways. You had to change trains, but... Uh, yeah, there were quite a few people that took the subway in those days. There's not too many people ride it now. Well, would a lot of Yankee fans wait outside at the visitors' entrance for you guys to be coming in during those World Series to give you the business? No, the Yankee fans were a little more sophisticated than the Giant fans were, and uh, and they didn't get a, get on us very much. Uh, they uh, they had the upper hand. They had a very good team and, a, and an outstanding pitching staff to go along with it. With it, and they usually won, so uh, <laughs> they could be uh, a little bit cocky and. Uh, a little uppity at times. Do you think people are aware that in the 50s, in, in your heyday, and everybody knows the Terry Cashman song, Willie Mickey and the Duke, you actually, more home runs, more RBIs, than both Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle. Do you think that maybe has gotten lost a little bit? In the 50s? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I don't think that's too important. It's just numbers. Mm-hmm. That's what we're playing today, a bunch of numbers games. Everybody knows their own numbers, and the they don't particularly know where they stand in the standings, but their one and loss record was the important thing for us, and, uh, and that's the way we were brought up, and that's the way we played. Uh, your numbers will be there. If you if you win the pennant, your numbers are going to be there. Do you remember seeing yourself on the first baseball card? I saw my uh, first baseball card the other day. Uh, my son-in-law had, had one, and uh, it was a reprint of it. And I told him, I said, I think i got a couple of those at home that are authentic, and if I do, i uh, I'll send him one, and uh, I haven't looked yet. I've only been home a couple of days. We uh, spend the summer usually in Northern California, but we're home now for a couple of high school graduations. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. Do you remember, though, being, and you talked about wanting to play in the major leagues even as a small child, seeing that card for the first time and realizing the magnitude of that? I didn't even 
know what it looked like. <laughs> I mean, uh, we got cards every year. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the bubblegum companies would give us cards each year, but uh, it wasn't the end thing then. Memorabilia was not a big thing right. then. And uh, especially if I known, knew then what I know now, I, uh, I would have gotten Jackie's and Gill's and, and uh, quite a few others, Campy's autographs on a lot of things that I, I have around the house that I had then. And uh, it'd be worth a lot of money. I'm going to ask you about a couple of your teammates in a second, but I, I'm always curious to know what size bat did you actually use? It was 35 inches long and uh, 34 ounces. And by today's standards, boy, that's heavy. Well, it wasn't heavy to me. No, I'm saying today, though, players have gotten into this light bat, bat speed. Home run hitters even don't use bats that are close to that size anymore. Well, uh, the, the, the game's changed. The ball's a little, little bit livelier. But I swung hard just in case the pitcher threw the ball where I was swinging. <laughs> Do you believe the ball is livelier? Well, I've been told it is by quite a few baseball people and the uh, some uh, some fellows have uh, taken the baseball apart and mm-hmm. checked it out, and it, they, they say it's wound tighter, and the, uh, the center portion of it is bigger than it used to be, and the ball has changed. It's uh, it's wound a little bit tighter and sewn a little bit tighter. I went. I, I've gone to some quite a few games, not a lot, but a couple of games last year, and I saw the fly balls were even higher than they used to be. Really, you feel. you could notice that, huh? Well, it. it in San Francisco, I went to their new park mm-hmm. uh, last year, and I noticed how high the fly balls were. Well, I, all it takes for me to know is that middle infielders are now hitting 20 home runs a year, and when 30 used to be a, a power hitter's numbers, uh, they can't tell me that things are the same as they used to be. It just wouldn't make any sense. I think you have to look at the opposite field home runs that some of these guys are hitting. That's a great point. You know, you got to have quite a bit of power. To hit the ball. You used to have to have quite a bit of power to hit a home run the opposite field, but... These little guys are punching that thing out there, and it's carrying into the second and third row in the opposite field. Well, last week, two guys, Larry Walker and Tony Batista, hit home runs. When they started to trot towards first base, all they had in their hands was a handle. The bat broke off, literally broke off, and they had a handle in their hand. That's that's impossible, isn't it? Well, when they made contact, the bat wasn't broken. Yeah. The ball jumped off the bat, and then the bat snapped. No, it's not impossible. Chuck Kasijan uh, pinched hit for me in the... 59 World Series and broke his bat and hit a home run in Comiskey Park in Chicago. Uh, it didn't break in half like that, but it was it was pretty well shattered when they brought it back to the band. Well, I stand corrected. Now I must ask, though, why were you pitch hit for in a World Series game? I'd never heard that before. Well, I, I had knee problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had knee surgery when I was 31, and I couldn't play more than two or three games without having my knee drained or get a shot of cortisone or something like that. Did you enjoy your time with the New York Mets when you came back to New York? I enjoyed it because of one reason. I enjoyed it because it was in New York, and uh, I was pretty well known there. And uh, Casey Stengel was the manager, and he made things very interesting day by day, even though we lost 120 games. Well, Mr. Snyder, let's finish up with this. If I give you a name, could you give me maybe the first thing that pops into your head? All right. If I say Pee Wee Reese. The greatest. Uh, he was the captain of our team, and uh, and he was loved by everybody. You can go up to anybody that was on the same team with Pee Wee Reese, and they will have a story for you about how he helped them become a better person or a better ball player. Jackie Robinson? Uh, probably the greatest competitor I've ever seen. George Sisler? Well, he was my hitting instructor. 
George Sisler and hit over 400 one year. Now, was it true, the story that I heard about they made you stand in a batting cage without a bat, just actually calling balls and strikes to familiarize yourself with what the strike zone was? Well, I, I had a tendency to, to swing at anything, and uh, they had to show me what my strike zone was. and I had to call every pitch, and then they put a bat in my hand, and I would swing at it, swing at the pitches, and, and take some, of course, and then tell Mr. Ricky, who was the branch Ricky, who was behind home plate, where the pitch was and what it was, what type of pitch it was, and everything else. And uh, that helped me uh, learn my strike zone, and uh, it got me to a point to where I got over 100 walks quite a few times. Hmm. Were you a guess hitter? No. I anticipated. And that's what Stan Musial told me, by the way. Um, he And Ted Williams said he guessed. Obviously, he was very prophetic if he was guessing, but Stan Musial said the same thing. It was an instinct more than it would be a guess. Well, I, I got to know my pitchers pretty well. And like, let's say Bob Gibson was going to pitch against us in St. Louis. And it'd be a night game. And I'd go up in my room about 3.30 in the afternoon. The bus left about 5 to go to the ballpark. And I'd lay back on my bed and close my eyes and picture Bob Gibson throwing to me and picture the rotation of, the, of his pitches and what type of pitches he threw and, and how I, what pitches I got hits off of him and what pitches he was getting me out on sometimes and uh, whatever. And, and I got a good mental picture for about a half hour of Bob Gibson so that anything he threw me during the game was not going to surprise me. It might get by me and it might get me out. But it wouldn't surprise me, and uh, that way you can uh, you can anticipate. You can say, I think he's going to throw me a moving fastball out of way, but I still got to be ready for his fastball in. I still got to be ready for the breaking ball. I still got to be ready for all this, so that nothing will surprise you. Were any of those moments spent picturing Bob Gibson throwing at you instead of? Well, he broke my elbow uh, one year in the Coliseum in mm-hmm. Los Angeles after I sliced a home run off of him to left field. And he buried one inside towards my ribs, and I put my elbow down, and, and there was a small crack in my right elbow. But that was part of the game. Uh, I didn't charge the mound. Uh, he was a little upset because I sliced that ball over that cheap screen out in left field. And uh, uh, we uh, it was a different brand of baseball at that particular time. Uh, pitchers uh, pitched inside, and uh, we didn't even have helmets when I first started. And uh, he'd get thrown out quite a bit. If you have a real good swing, some of those grizzly old Veterans, when I first started, said, swing like that again, you'd be hitting off your number. The only number we had was on our back. <laughs> if I say Willie Mays, you say? Well, one of the finest baseball players ever to play the game. Uh, Willie and I are very good friends. Uh, e. Mantle and I became uh, very good friends. And uh, I love Willie. I, I think he was great for baseball, as everybody does. And uh, there's nothing he couldn't do. And uh, He beat us quite a few times. Mickey Mantle? Fine man. I, I I just wish that he's taken a little bit better care of himself, uh, not only for longevity in life, but uh, for better numbers. And in fact, all of us can say that a little bit, quite a few of us anyway, that uh, we take a little bit better care of ourselves while we'd, uh, we'd had more numbers. But as I said, numbers weren't important then. It was winning the pennant, getting into the World Series. Now, you knew him, obviously, all through his life and, and obviously at the end. Was he disappointed in the way that he had lived his life or disappointed in the way that, as you said, it wasn't as big as or grand as it could have been? Well, you, you know, like Sacho Page said, don't look back, something might be gaining on you. Mm-hmm. You don't look back. You uh, There weren't enough hours in the day for him. And he lived a pretty fast life on the field. He lived a very fast life off the field. And it just caught up with him, that's all. And uh, 
he was through, and then of course he had the osteomyelitis or whatever mm-hmm. it is, the, the, the bone problem. And the poor guy uh, played in pain most of the time, but he didn't complain. He just went out and laughed and, and had a great sense of humor and uh, a great knack of how to play baseball. Hank Aaron? I saw Hank Aaron when he was a second baseman for the Braves in his first year, and he was very tough to defense at that particular time because he had real good power to right center for a right-handed batter. And it was tough to defense him as a center fielder. When he Later on, when he the home run record came in sight, why, then he became a pull hitter, and he was much easier to defense. But uh, Hank, uh, Hank was a top-notch player and top-notch guy. And Sandy Koufax. Greatest pitcher I've ever seen and good friend. Was he mesmerizing? I mean, when you were in the outfield, did you almost find yourself watching as a, a fan at times? Well, I'll tell you something about him. You knew what pitch was coming. Without a without anybody up in the clubhouse flashing signs to you and letting you know what's coming, because when he threw his curve, his thumb was sticking up at the top of the ball, and you could see it, and you knew it was a curveball, and you still couldn't hit it. And he was so good, it didn't matter. No, every, I was anxious every time he was going to pitch. I was anxious to get to the ballpark because I might see a no hitter pitch. Mm. That, that's just how good he was. And we'll finish up with this: If I asked you, man on second, tie game, two outs, your team is up. Out of all the players you've ever seen play, who would you like up in that situation? Well, I can't say of, of all the guys I've seen play. I, I, I like Joe DiMaggio probably more than anybody in mm-hmm. a situation like that. But uh, we had a guy in our ball club that very, was very underrated. And uh, I asked him one time, how come you get so many RBIs? And he says, well, he says, I'll tell you what, every time I look out there and see runners on base, I see dollar signs. <laughs> was Carl Farrello. Carl Farrello. And Stan Musial, by the way, again, told me that he knew it was great to be a 300 hitter, but he saw the home run guys, and he mentioned yourself and Ralph Kiner as being the money guys, and he knew it was time to start hitting some home runs. <laughs> well, he did that. He was he was, he was was fun to watch hit. I, I think the best player that I ever saw play, he was a little bit moody, but the, the best talented player, and, and we had him in our organization for a short while, lost him for $8,000 to Pittsburgh with Bob Clemente. I didn't realize that. He was in the Dodger organization? Yes, and they tried on the Montreal roster, which is our AAA mm-hmm. uh, farm club, and Branch Rickey knew about him. Uh, he was he was over in Pittsburgh then, and he got him for $8,000. I never heard that story before. So Branch Rickey, obviously, when he left the Dodgers, knew about Bob Roberto Clemente. Definitely, and wow. we would have never lost a pennant. Boy, you're anything. darn right about that. <laughs> Put him in right field, and things, uh, boy, they might have changed a little bit. I would have gone to right, uh, left field if, <laughs> if he didn't want to play left field because we had furlough on myself. That's right. You're right. That would have been a heck of an outfield. Well, Mr. Snyder, I appreciate it. As I tell all my guests, it, it really is a verbal history lesson. And um, Roger Kahn's The Boys of Summer. Did you enjoy that book? Did you think that was a fair portrait? I think the story about the team was very good. Roger uh, Roger traveled with us a couple of years and knew, knew the players very well. And the biographies uh, were a little bit on the negative mm-hmm. side. And I, I didn't like that part of the book. but. Uh, And the last gentleman, I didn't mention Roy Campanella. Pardon me. Your thoughts on Mr. Campanella? Well, he, could, he would have been the first black manager had he not been injured. There's no question about that. He knew the game exceptionally well. And One thing I'd like to do is congratulate uh, Maddox on the game he pitched last night. It was uh, that one hitter was outstanding. And you enjoy a, a well-pitched game more so than these 10-8 bombastic situations yeah, that I, happen I, a lot? I try to look at the game as a hitter. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's the type of pitcher that, doesn't scare you too much, you know, uh, but he gets you out. 
and he sends you back to the bench talking to yourself all the time. You know, that's very interesting. I have said for years that when you watch Greg Maddox, and I've been fortunate enough to watch him right behind home plate, I think idiots like myself say, well, that wouldn't be that hard to hit. And then I've always finished up with three pitches later, I'd be dragging my bat back to the bench mumbling. You know, the one theory I have on hitting is that I think Greg Maddox would be a comfortable 0 for 4. Now, Randy Johnson, and me being a left-handed batter, would not be a comfortable. That'd be like going sitting in the dentist chair. But uh, Maddox is around the plate, uh, and Glavin's around the plate. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the kind of guys you like to, to hit against because you, you don't have time to think about too much. Just get up there and look for the ball and see it and try and hit it. And you mentioned Bob Gibson before he hit your elbow. Don Trisdale had the same reputation as a guy who would make you very squeamish as you tried to dig in. Well, quick story about Drysdale. Uh, he was pitching and throwing a lot of pitches one night against Cincinnati, and uh, Frank Robinson came up, and uh, first base was open, and uh, two outs, and Drysdale got the next hitter out. I don't remember who it was pretty easily. So uh, Halston put up four fingers to walk uh, Frank Robinson. So Drysdale hit him with one. He says, I'm tired. Why waste four? <laughs> and Frank Robinson, in what it was a game, uh, the HBO special, have you seen that show? Yes, I have. Uh, thoroughly enjoyable. Frank Robinson talked about, well, I knew, as you said, with Bob Gibson, it was part of the game. They were going to brush me back. They were going to knock me down. And then it was my job to do something about it after that. Right. That's it. To get even with them by, mm-hmm. by hitting the ball hard somewhere. Well, Mr. Snyder, I really appreciate your time this evening. Thank you very much. As I said, a uh, big fan of a Brooklyn team that I never saw. When I watched things like when it was a game, Mickey Mantle's movie 61, excuse me, Billy Crystal's movie 61, is coming out on HBO. I've told people, and I don't know if this is strange or not, I actually feel a physical yearning. I wish I had seen Stan Musial play. I wish I had gone to Ebbets Field. I wish I had seen Joe DiMaggio play. Is that normal for a guy at 38 years old? Well, that shows that you're a real baseball fan, and that's the important thing. Well, again, I'm fascinated by gentlemen such as yourself and the verbal biography and a verbal history lesson that we're able to get. Thank you very much, Mr. Snyder. I appreciate your time, and good luck with everything that's going on with your family as well. Thank you very much. Thanks. Have a great evening. All right, bye. Bye Bye-bye. Hardball is brought to you by. Hi, this is Brad Hangey from Duck's Dugout in Marietta, Georgia, and we're proud to be a sponsor of Hardball. With a 6,500-square-foot showroom, we are one of the largest sports memorabilia stores in the country, and we're full of -of one-of-a-kind trading cards and memorabilia. Duck's Dugout is located at 2800 Canton Road in Marietta. Check us out at ducksdugout.com. Hey, this is Ray Giudice, baseball fan, baseball lover, listening to Chris Domino's Hardball, 404-964-4180. Is my number if you need me to talk about the law or baseball. They left us. They left us. There's a bitterness that's never going to leave us because they never had to leave us. When you're eight years old, you don't give a damn about business. You give a damn about where's Duke. And Los Angeles might as well have been Saturn. It was so far away. What do you think of the idea of the Dodgers moving to Los Angeles? I don't like the idea. How about the Dodgers moving to Queens? I don't like that idea either. And uh, there used to be a ballpark Where the field was warm and green And uh, the people played their crazy game With a joy I'd never seen And uh, the air was such a wonder from the hot dogs and the beer Yes, there used to be a ballpark Well, we-
Where would you rather see him if you had to choose between the two? I'd rather see him right here in Brooklyn. Right here.